If you like this podcast, you're going to really like McClanahan Academy. Head over to McClanahanAcademy.com. That's McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll. It's free of charge. You get a free class, 10 Myths of American History. When you do enroll, I've got nearly 20 classes there available for purchase. Go to McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll today and get a real history education. The Brian McClanahan Show, Episode 700. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to the Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to the Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to be back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter, like my Facebook page, and subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast. Find all those social media accounts on my webpage. That's brianmcclanahan.com, B-R-I-O-N, mcclanahan.com. While you're there, give me that email address. I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, free audiobook of the same title read by yours truly. Support the show by going to mclanahanacademy.com. It's always free to enroll. Get that free class, 10 Myths of American History, when you do enroll. And, of course, purchase one or 20 of my classes there. It helps keep this podcast free of charge, and you get great content when you purchase those classes. I also recommend you support the show by going to brianmcclanahan.com. Click on the Support tab and throw a few pennies my way. Or if you're watching on YouTube... Click on that little super thanks button under the video. You can throw a few pennies my way that way or go to anchor.fm, become a subscriber there. Lots of great ways to support the show financially. Buy my logo and all kinds of cool stuff at the shop tab at brianmcclanahan.com. But as always, rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. Give it that five-star review. Comment on it on YouTube or wherever you can comment for your podcast. It's available on many different platforms. That helps people find out about the show. It moves it up in the algorithm, lets people know what's going on, and it gets more listeners. And of course, always share it around on social media. Get your friends, your family members, your enemies listening to The Brian McClanahan Show. Get them thinking locally and acting locally. That's how we turn this thing around. All right. Well, it is episode 700, and so that's a big milestone, right? Well, I want to talk about a very important topic, and that is John C. Calhoun. Now, I've talked about Calhoun on this podcast many times, but I want to talk about it today in a different way. And I want to reference a new book by Clyde Wilson on John C. Calhoun, and it's, it's this book. It's entitled Calhoun, A Statesman for the 21st Century. This is out with Shotwell uh, Publishing out of uh, Columbia, South Carolina. And it is a collection of essays that Clyde has written on John C. Calhoun. Now, if you don't know who Clyde is, or you never heard of Clyde before, or you maybe have a passing uh, understanding of who Clyde is, Clyde was the editor of the John C. Calhoun papers for most of the volumes. Now, not, not all of them, but most of them, the majority of the volumes. And he took over the project when he went to University of South Carolina in the 1970s and continued the project into the early 2000s. Um, I was his last student at the University of South Carolina in the doctoral program. So um, I never worked at the Calhoun papers. Most of his students did. I didn't work at them. Um, he was wrapping them up by about the time I got there, and um, I just didn't work for the papers. But uh, the fact is, Clyde did this for a long period of time, 30 years, and produced many, many volumes. In each one of those volumes, Clyde wrote an introduction. And those introductions serve as a type of biography of John C. Calhoun. He's been often asked, why didn't you write a comprehensive biography of John C. Calhoun? Well, his, his response typically was, well, because I wrote all the introductions of the Calhoun papers. And Clyde changed the way the Calhoun papers were, were collected and edited. They had gotten very sloppy at one point, and he really made them a top-notch, first-class 
collection of letters, essays, you name it, speeches. They collected every scrap of thing they could to put in the Calhoun papers. They weren't selective in you know keeping stuff out. Some of the editors before Clyde took over had done that. They had left things out or summarized things that they didn't think were that important. So the project was spotty at best. But when Clyde took it over, it was different. And he mentions how hard this was. I mean, he had to raise money. He had to fundraise. He had to do things to try to keep the project going so that they could continue this massive work. And there are many, many volumes of the John C. Calhoun papers. In fact, um, there are, I uh, can't remember the exact number, over 20, over 20 volumes of, of the Calhoun papers. But um, it's, it's an amazing accomplishment and something that people don't realize how amazing it was to have this kind of accomplishment. Calhoun was a prolific writer, a prolific speaker, someone who had been involved in, in government for a long period of time, beginning in the 18-teens. He was in, in the United States government essentially um, without, without pause from the time he entered Congress just before the War of 1812 until his death in 1850. So you're talking about a period of time of almost 40 years uninterrupted in the United States Congress or in the federal government. And of course, in that time period, he was also vice president, secretary of war, secretary of state. So there was a tremendous amount of correspondence and material that had to be collected, plus all of his private letters, which were extensive that they could get their hands on. So this was, without question, a major accomplishment, an accomplishment that made any biography, any kind of work about Calhoun, uh, it was essential for those works to be completed. Now, he's often been asked who wrote the best biography of John C. Calhoun, and his response generally is either Margaret Coit's biography of Calhoun or uh, the, Duke's, the Gustavus Pinckney biography of John C. Calhoun, which is uh, in public domain. Uh, the Coit book is not, but he did. Clyde did write a new introduction to the Coit book at one point, and that essay, that introductory essay, is actually included in this book, Calhoun, A Statesman for the 21st Century. Now, what prompted Shotwell Publishing to publish this book is that just a few years ago, Bob Elder, Robert Elder, at Baylor University, wrote a massive new biography of John C. Calhoun. And I've talked about that book a couple of times. We actually had an Abbeville Institute uh, webinar on that, a Zoom webinar, which is available at abbevilleacademy.org if you want to go catch that. But we had a Zoom webinar with Lee Cheek, who produced a very good collection of Calhoun's writings, political writings. And uh, that was on Elder's book. And so it was myself, Lee Cheek, and I think uh, Don Livingston was also involved in that too. But um, it was a, a great discussion. And people have asked me about the Elder book. What do you think about it? Well, I'm going to read you a line from the Elder book, or at least the last couple of paragraphs in the book. You can often figure out where the author is coming from. You don't know this by reading the preface and the conclusion. Read the conclusion first, then go back and read the preface, and then work through the book, because that's going to tell you where they fit when it comes to their subject material. Now, Elder seems to be a, a, a nice fellow. He's um, someone that was supremely interested in John C. Calhoun, and this book is nearly 600 pages. He spent a long time with Calhoun, and he is a thorough researcher, and he's a good writer. I'll say that about Elder. He, he writes well. He did his work. 
He researched his subject. But you cannot get away from the fact that Elder, like every other historian, including yours truly, including Clyde Wilson, has their own preconceived notions or political beliefs or ideological beliefs, and that's going to color how they approach their subject. The title of this book is Calhoun, American Heretic. Now, I'm not so certain Elder believes that Calhoun is a heretic. He's a heretic in the way that we present, and I'm not certain that, and, and Clyde doesn't know this either. He, he's kind of uh, stuck on this issue of whether Elder did think uh, Calhoun was a heretic. Elder comes down firmly to say that Calhoun was at the center of everything in America. He was more American than people realize, that this idea that he was a heretic would, is only a byproduct of recent interpretations of American history. That Calhoun was firmly in line with the direction of the United States for much of his political career, and we forget that at our loss. Though he's not a fan of Calhoun, he thinks that studying Calhoun gives us a better understanding of America and a better understanding of American history. And so in that way, uh, we should always examine Calhoun. In fact, he, he quotes John Stuart Mill in the book and saying that, look, if we, if we forget about the outliers, the outliers in the way we conceptualize of America, and Mill called Calhoun in 1861 the most important political thinker essentially since the Founding Fathers. If we forget about these outliers, then we forget about the critique of our own assumptions, and we lose sight of that. You know, for example, if you just look at how things are portrayed today when it comes to American democracy, majoritarian, numerical majoritarian American democracy, we've forgotten the critique that Calhoun had of that particular system, and that is at our peril. This is exactly why Cal, uh, Clyde Wilson called Calhoun a statesman for the 21st century. In fact, Calhoun was very careful about this. To call to uh, Clyde Wilson was very careful about this to call Calhoun a statesman, because a statesman is not someone who just does whatever is good for the immediate moment. A statesman is a far-seeing individual who does things that are right because they're right, not because they're going to win political applause or they're going to win the the poll at that time but because they're right for the future. And this was Calhoun's dire predictions in the 1840s and then at his death in 1850, that doing what America was doing was not going to be a fix long term, that it needed to have a different set of principles and beliefs, a real form of republicanism, and in that way, America could be saved. And so when Clyde talks about Calhoun as a statesman for the 21st century, he is on to something there. I, I mean, of course, I'm his student, so this is you know, to say that I, to say that I'm not influenced by that would be, um, you know, a, a stretch. But I mean, he is he is certainly someone who was unafraid to say that Calhoun had something valuable to say about American society, valuable to say about American government, and we should pay attention to that. Now, contrast that. I'm going to read these paragraphs from Bob Elder at the end of his of his book and his conclusion. He says this. Finally, quote. Finally, it is not difficult to draw a straight line from Calhoun through the Confederacy and massive resistance in the Civil Rights era to Dylan Roof's evil act and the most extreme elements of our society today. End quote. Now I'm going to read the rest of the paragraph in a minute, but Bob Elder, in this massive biography of Calhoun, and he has more of this in, in this chapter, thinks that Calhoun was in, essence, was in essence responsible for Dylan Roof. Now that's a joke. 
That's laughable. That's laughable. It's a laughable assertion. But this is where I caution people about modern historians, and I've said it before. Cynthia Nicoletti wrote a very good book on secession, on the Texas v. White decision, essentially, or secession itself, when it comes to Jefferson Davis. And what you find in that book, if you read it, she apologizes at the beginning and apologizes at the end for seeming to be sympathetic with the arguments that the Davis team was making against his charge of treason. Because when you look at the evidence, you come down to believe that, well, wait a second here, maybe the stuff that Jefferson Davis is saying is not incorrect. Maybe what they're saying here has got a lot of merit to it. But she has to apologize because she wants a job. Now, Elder already had a position at Baylor University. Uh, He already had tenure. But he's looking beyond Baylor, I'm sure. He doesn't want to be at Baylor, I would think, for the rest of his career. He probably wants to go somewhere else. And to go somewhere else is going to require lip service or at least a nod to the other side and saying, you know, I'm just one of you too. I might find Calhoun appealing in some ways. There's something, some things I like about Calhoun, but I can't ever say that. In fact, I have to denounce that, which he does in the rest of the paragraph. And I have to show that Calhoun really was evil. He wasn't really a good guy. Even if when you read this book, you come across an appreciation for Calhoun, and you come across with an appreciation for Calhoun was as a man. And you start thinking, well, these leftists have said Calhoun's pretty good. Uh, his influence here and there has been pretty good. Uh, these people have kind of liked Calhoun. They've been able to take Calhoun and run with Calhoun's ideas. And those have been a, a for example, uh, those have been an influence in South Africa in anti-apartheid actions. There are, and this is where Victor Davis Hanson and all the right-wingers, they point out, well, look, look, look. You've got Calhoun being used by leftists. See, the Old South is just leftist. Even though, of course, Calhoun was never a leftist, but what he was was a realist in the problems of majoritarian democracy. And that there should be, if we look at the real intent of written constitutions, there should be protections for minorities. That should be there. And so you have to have majoritarian systems with a concurrent majority, right? You have to have these systems with a check for minorities in place so they're not abused by the numerical majority. Now, again, we're looking at a system where we have conservatives, essentially, in America, as Calhoun would say, and I think it's true, even we talked about this week, is potentially a permanent political minority. So what do you do? You come up with ways to check the power of a numerical majority, and the Democrats are going to complain about it. But when Victor Davis Hanson runs around and says, this, this, is, this is all, we need to believe in majoritarian systems, numerical majoritarian systems. You know what you're doing? You're sealing your own casket, right? I mean, this is exactly what's happening. And this is where Calhoun becomes important. Now, other look, leftists have used Calhoun, and rightfully so, to protect minority interests from abuse by, by majorities. And that's okay. Because there needs to be some type of supermajority to get anything done. What Calhoun argued is that to do that would ensure that the center will be so limited in power, so limited in power, that it would have no or virtually no impact on modern American society. That was the point. You know where you would have it? At the state level. You would certainly have majoritarian systems at the state level. And and look, Calhoun viewed South Carolina as being a perfect example of how a great government could work. But it didn't have this concurrent majority. But regardless, it reflected the will of the people of South Carolina. 
And that was good enough for him because Massachusetts could do the same thing and Michigan could do the same thing and California could do the same thing. It wouldn't matter, right? Calhoun said he was a conservative because, and because he's a conservative, he's a states' rights man. He always claimed he was a conservative. He never said he was a left-winger, ever. So let me continue with what Elder says. He says, um, by the, but by the time that line reaches us, it is suspiciously faint as if the forces in our history that Calhoun represents have actuated, I'm sorry, attenuated uh, to the point that they, are, that they only exercise their force on radical extremists instead of continuing to operate powerfully and silently in the structures of our society, our governments, and ourselves. So he's saying, look, Calhoun is faint now. It only operates on extremists. Only extremists believe in John C. Calhoun. Now look at what he's done. Calhoun is an extremist today. It used to be, though, front and center. It used to be the, one of the dominant strains in America. It wasn't heretical. Today it is heretical to say that you think Calhoun is a statesman for the 21st century. But it used to be mainstream. Calhoun was mainstream. He was not some type of outlier. In excising Calhoun's name from buildings, toppling monuments to his memory, and associating him with fringe elements of our society, we should be careful not to forget his central role in our past and unavoidably our present. So, when taking these things down, we're saying that he was a fringe, but was he? Was he really a fringe? And what you can say about this, too, is um, and this is where people on the right don't like this, because then you're saying that you're agreeing, essentially, with the 1619 Project, because Calhoun, uh, if Calhoun was central to the American experiment, well, then the 1619 Project is correct. That we had these beliefs, but we never lived up to them that we had these ideas, as Joe Biden says, or the neoconservatives say, or the West Coast Straussians say, or the leftists say. We had these ideas that we never lived up to because of people like John C. Calhoun, who was a block, and because of that, that's been a disaster for American conservatism. If we excommunicate Calhoun by casting him as the defender of a rejected path in American history, the anti-democratic defender of an antiquated brutality and the father of the failed confederacy, we will be unable to see the lines running from Calhoun's America to our own. And if we reduce him to his defense of slavery, which set him apart even in his own day, we may miss the fact that when Calhoun proclaimed the United States, not the confederacy, the government of the white man, it was possibly one of the least controversial things that he ever said. Elder essentially is agreeing that uh, the... Proposition Nation was just a myth for most of American history. And that it was the radical transformation of America at that point that made something different. And there was resistance to that. But, uh, look, I, I think that he's being even-handed with Calhoun here. Though, saying that there's a line from Calhoun to Dylan Roof is just ridiculous. Uh, regardless, he's saying Calhoun was central in his defense of slavery, which set him apart even in his own day. Now, I disagree with that. And, I, and I've had a, I had a quick conversation with Elder on this uh, in so, via social media at one point. He, again, he's a nice fellow. I said, well, look, you know, Calhoun wasn't necessarily out of line with other pro-slavery thoughts. He, he wasn't out of line with what people have been saying since the 18th century in places like Massachusetts and elsewhere. And in some ways, the positive good argument, as Clyde points out in his book, Calhoun, a statesman for the 21st century, 
was not too different from, say, the necessary evil argument. It were, there were two sides of the same coin. He's saying it's not an evil. If it's an evil, we have to get rid of it right now. And we have the power to do it. Congress can do whatever it wants. If it wants to abolish slavery now, it can. Why? Because we pass an unconstitutional bank. We can do it. But he's saying he's not defending slavery in the abstract. He's defending it as it exists. And this is another side of the necessary evil argument, which is, well, we don't think slavery is good, but as it exists now, it has to be maintained. Because if we don't have it, we don't know what to do about it. Right? So from the 18th and 19th century position, if you just want to try to understand, these people were looking at society as it existed, and they said, we don't know what to do about this. We're not living in the 21st century and seeing what we could do about this and how we could do something about this. The 18th and 19th century Americans said, we don't really know what to do about this at all. North and South, there was no program. There was no compensated emancipation program that any Northerner was willing to accept on a large scale. Southerners didn't know what to do if they abolished the system. How are you going to incorporate or integrate all these people into society? That they didn't think, and most Northerners, by the way, didn't think either, were capable of self-government or Republican institutions. What do you do about that? Yes, there was racism in that. These people were racist. Okay, so I mean, that's just something that it was. But they have to, they were trying to figure this out. So in, there's no, nothing heretical about that. And I would say not even unique. It's the least unique part of Calhoun's thought was his defense of slavery. But he ends with saying, we do not have to honor John C. Calhoun, nor should we. Why not? Why shouldn't we? But he, was not, but he has not left us the luxury of forgetting him. Perhaps that as much as anything else is his real monument. So we don't have the luxury of forgetting him. We should forget him. We shouldn't honor him. But we can't forget him. Now contrast that with Clyde Wilson. Now Clyde wrote a piece at the Abbeville Institute a couple of weeks back about being forgotten. Because Elder only mentions Clyde one time in the entire book. And that's in the acknowledgments at the end of a chain of editors of the John C. Calhoun papers. And so Klein took great offense to that. And I, and I remember when I got this book, and I remember looking at it, and I looked immediately, is Clyde going to be mentioned anywhere in the book? Is he going to be referenced? Does Elder take the time to actually deal with Clyde's arguments about Calhoun? And he doesn't. Nowhere in the book does he do that. Now again, he deals with arguments... Uh, with Frederick Douglass with John C. Calhoun, or leftist figures with John C. Calhoun, but he never directly comes out and wrestles with arguments that Clyde has made about Calhoun. He doesn't do it in the book, and so it's a grave omission on his part. The man that was the primary editor for what we understand as the John C. Calhoun papers today, and wrote, I mean, wrote about, um, I guess it's close to you know two dozen, or uh, um, or close to two dozen. Uh, edited introductions to these papers is ignored. Now, this was, in Clive's mind, um, a slap. It was an affront. It was something that uh, should be re should be uh, should have some kind of response. And that was this book, John C. Calhoun's Statements for the Twenty First Century. You should get this. You should get this book. It has great essays in it. A couple of essays I had not seen before because I did not own the books. But there's one on Calhoun and economics that is fantastic. If you're interested in antebellum American economics, if, and this is why Murray Rothbard liked John C. Calhoun, because Calhoun was onto something when it came to banking and cabals and financial cabals 
and what we should think about as a truly free economy. Calhoun was onto that stuff, and it's amazing that these things have been forgotten. So we forget Calhoun at our own peril, but that's just one part of Calhoun's philosophy. The other thing, of course, is anti-imperialism. Now, Elder and others have, you know, Matthew Carp and all these people, well, Calhoun was only opposed to it because of slavery. And, and look, Elder does make that point, but he also, to his credit, says, well, wait a second here. There was also something else about Calhoun's resistance to imperialism that we should find interesting. We should find applicable to the 21st century. Elder is balanced through much of the book and actually taking Calhoun, he takes the leftist arguments and he says, yeah, these are probably value, valuable critiques, but what about this too? So I think in that way, Elder is being even-handed. He's not being uh, someone who is just completely anti-Calhoun, even though the conclusion would make it seem that way. Uh, and he does uh, you know, mention that it took him years to write this book, and he spent a lot of time with Calhoun, and he, he, doesn't, and he, he doesn't really, I think, care for Calhoun very much. Uh, I think that comes out. But he does at least think that Calhoun had some valuable things to say. Well, in the co concluding chapter of this book by Clyde Wilson, Calhoun, a statesman for the 21st century, he has a great chapter on the unknown Calhoun. Now, full disclosure, uh, when I wrote my book, Forgotten Conservatives in American History with Clyde, Clyde wrote the chapter on Calhoun, and he should have. Calhoun is included in that book. We both believe, as did Russell Kirk and others, that Calhoun is, an, is a central figure in American conservatism and should be paid attention to. He should not be relegated to, as some, to, to the dustbin as some progressive whose concurrent majority is dangerous to conservatism. In fact, the concurrent majority is vital to conservatism in America. It's vital to any group in America that is going to be in a minority position. And I would say that real American conservatism is in a minority position in America. This is what Max Boot said. I agree with him. I actually agree with him there. It is in a minority position. Look, Joe Biden represents the mainstream, and that's Lincolnian nationalism. It's the Lincoln myth, and that is not conservative in any stretch of the imagination. But that's what passes for conservatism. I mean, any, any Republican could have written that, um, with the exception of some of the things about you know Trump and MAGA Republicans and all that kind of stuff. Any Republican could have written parts of that speech, and it would have been accepted as, yeah, the Republicans would have cheered. They would have cheered for it. Little question about that. Uh, Clyde says this in This Unknown Calhoun, and I think this is an important point to make, and I want to read a couple of parts of this book in this episode. He says, The notion that Calhoun was all about slavery and nothing but slavery is the product of the current reign of cultural Marxism and does not represent a balanced view of American history. It has not always been so. In 1950, Margaret Coit's admiring biography, John C. Calhoun, an American portrait, won the Pulitzer Prize. In 1959, a committee chaired uh, by John F. Kennedy, named Calhoun as one of the five greatest senators of all time. Calhoun's A Disquisition on Government has been recognized in every generation and internationally as among the most important political treatises written by an American. It is somewhat ridiculous, Clyde said, to single out Calhoun as a defender of slavery when no one in his time proposed any serious solution to the slavery question. Indeed, Lincoln himself on his election declared he would not know what to do about slavery even if he had the power which he did not have. Calhoun was forthright in condemning agitation in the North about slavery in the South, warning that it was threatening the bonds of union. In the last few years of his life, in response to the Wilmot Proviso, which barred the South from use of the new territories acquired from Mexico in violation of the Missouri Compromise, 
Calhoun did become the most conspicuous proponent of a defense of Southern unity within the Union. By that time, Calhoun already occupied the position of elder statesman, who was admired and listened to by thoughtful people North and South for his adherence to principle and independence of political party maneuvers. So he's saying, look, it is true, but, but that's not the most important or interesting thing about Calhoun's political career. That was in the last years of his life. Now, you can say, well, wait a second, what about 1837? What about the 1840s? Calhoun's positive good speech, which of course Clyde covers in this book too, Elder talks about it, but Clyde does it better, um, would say that uh, here we have uh, a man who is uh, saying that slavery is a good as it exists. He never defended slavery in the abstract, by the way. Calhoun never did that. Another thing that Don Livingston has pointed out with Calhoun, Calhoun was willing to admit that over time, all of these groups that he did not think were suitable for republicanism could be suitable for republicanism and free government. He mentions women, for example. Of course, Calhoun's favorite person to correspond with was his daughter. She was very bright, astute, astute uh, when, it come, when it came to politics and other things. And so Calhoun loved to think and, and ponder about what kind of future his daughter could have in an America where women had more say in things. I mean, it was not something that he thought was out of the realm of possibility. So look, Clyde is making a very good point here that to re relegate Calhoun to slavery and only slavery is ridiculous. It's, it's just a simple byproduct of the stupidity of a modern American society. In the concluding part of this essay, Cal uh, Clyde says, Calhoun's statesmanship never showed better perhaps than in his stand on the Mexican War. Texas had won its own independent nationhood, and thanks to John Tyler and Calhoun, had become a member of the American Union. Tensions remained high with Mexico over the boundaries of Texas and other matters. Polk, on assuming office, sent an army forced to occupy the barren land between the Nueces and the Rio Grande rivers, which Mexicans asserted was not part of Texas. A clash occurred with Mexican forces in the disputed area. When the news of this reached Washington, Polk declared that American blood had been shed on American soil and asked Congress to recognize a state of war. Calhoun raised a lonely voice against the surge of patriotism that ensued. He refused to support the war resolution in the Senate. A border incident did not necessarily call for all-out war, he said. Most importantly, a perilous precedent had been set. The president had, in effect, initiated a war without waiting for the people or Congress. If this precedent were allowed to stand, it would empower any future president to commit the country to war at will. And so it has been. We can measure the quality of Calhoun's statesmanship and love of democratic government when we realize that the war was very popular, especially in the South, and when we compare him with, the, with most of the Whigs in Congress. Opposed to the war and the Polk administration, they nevertheless voted for the war resolution out of fear of being branded as unpatriotic and then voted no on all the legislation to supply the army. As the war progressed, Calhoun repeatedly argued for limited war aims and against the rising clamor of manifest destiny. Let the U.S. be satisfied with Texas, New Mexico, and California, and not invade and occupy Mexico. His remarks might apply to the 21st century as well as the 19th. And he said this, this is a quote from Calhoun. We make a great mistake in supposing all people are capable of self-government. Acting under that impression, many are anxious to force free governments on all the people of this continent and over the world if they had the power. It has been lately urged in a very respectable quarter that the, is, it is the mission of this country to spread civil and religious liberty over the globe, and especially over this continent, even by force if necessary. It is a sad delusion. 
None but a people advanced to a high state of intellectual and moral excellence are capable, in a civilized condition, of forming and maintaining free governments. And among those who are so far advanced, very few indeed have had the good fortune to form constitutions capable of endurance. Now, of course, a 21st century leftist would look at this and say, well, that's racist. He's saying Mexican people aren't capable of this. Well, Calhoun didn't think they were, and he looked at the history of Mexico to say, well, I mean, look at what's happened down there. It's been a disaster. He doesn't think these people are capable of free government. They've never really had it. It's just, they just don't know what to do. Uh, their culture is not in line with Anglo-American institutions. In fact, I think that you could, Calhoun would argue and could argue, that uh, only there's only been really one people in the world that's ever had the, the ability to create things that have endured as they have, and that is the Anglo-American tradition. That's it. It's a particular section of the world that's been able to do it. Not France, not Germany, right? Not Italy, not Greece, not Russia, not China, not India, not any African nation, not any South American nation, just one group of people. And that would be the Anglo-American tradition. And we, we, are, we are benefiting from that on a regular basis. That that is part of our heritage in America. But this is what Calhoun would say, and I think Clyde would agree. He does agree. The attempt to create a free government in Mexico would only result in the U.S. installing and permanently propping up, by force, a puppet government, as the British had done in India. Sound familiar, he says? At this time, Calhoun wrote his daughter, his closest confidant, quote, Our people have undergone a great change. Their inclination is for conquest and empire, regardless of their institutions and liberty. Or rather, they think they hold their liberty by a divine tenure, which no imprudence or folly on their part can defeat. We act as if good institutions and liberty belong to us of right, and that neither neglect nor folly can deprive us of their blessing. Clyde says, to those of a conservative disposition, Calhoun may seem to be a prophet, the full import of whose warnings are yet to be seen. That is why Clyde Wilson calls Calhoun a statesman for the 21st century. There's so much to admire in Calhoun and so many things to take out of that. That's why I did the Reading John C. Calhoun course at McClanahan Academy. We, I agree with Elder. We cannot forget Calhoun. Now, he's saying we should kind of forget Calhoun, but, um, but we can't because he's so ingrained in American society. We can't forget him. We shouldn't forget him. And I do agree with Clyde that Calhoun would be a statesman for the 21st century. If we'd only listen. Russell Kirk said, we need to listen to Calhoun. We need to listen to John Randolph of Roanoke. That Southern tradition offers a nice critique of modern America and gives you some valuable insight on, to try to, on how to mitigate some of the problems that we have in modern American society that people of all races, all backgrounds could embrace. Right? It's not just uh, you know, a certain group of Americans that could, that could be affected by this, but all Americans could embrace these things and understand this could make American society better. Not worse. All right. That's going to wrap it up for this week. Episode 700 is in the book. Hopefully we have another 700. I'll see you next week on the Brian McClanahan Show. See you then.